We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. This is a longer text than what we've done so far in our series, but as I hope you'll see this morning, it's a passage that hangs together to give us one important message. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your help now that we would be able to hear the Word of God with ears of faith. We pray that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be soft. Father, that our spirits would be humble to be corrected. Father, we pray that our spirits would also be humble to be encouraged and that we would take the truth that You have revealed in Your Word and that we would embrace it by faith and believe, God, that this is how You work in Your people. You work through Your Word, applied by Your Spirit. And so we ask You to do that this morning. Father, we pray that You would help us to have discernment as we consider this text. I pray that You would keep me from error and that You would keep these, Your people, in the truth. Father, we are dependent upon You. And so we ask, Father, boldly and humbly that You would please work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. I wonder if anyone here this morning watches the PBS series Antiques Roadshow. As I'm looking out on our church that's made up of 70% millennials, I realize this is the wrong show to ask you about. Antiques Roadshow. Do you know that show's been on the air for 22 seasons? That's a long time. I find it fascinating that in a culture that is awash with new and exciting entertainment, folks are still tuning in to watch a show that's essentially about old stuff. It's about junk. But it's not really, I guess, the antiques that get people to tune into the show. It's the possibility that someone will bring in what they think is an old trinket that turns out to be a priceless treasure. Even if you've never seen the show, you can imagine what I'm talking about. The lady brings in great-grandpa's pocket watch, and it turns out it's an early American masterpiece worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think that's what keeps a show about old stuff on the air. It's the thrill of seeing people discover that they already possessed a priceless treasure. They didn't need to go looking for riches. They were already rich. They just needed to realize what they had in their possession. 
Friends, if you'll forgive the historical inaccuracy, you could say that our passage in Colossians 2 is like an antiques roadshow moment for Christians. In these verses, the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to understand that that old gospel is actually a priceless treasure. And it's a treasure they already possess. The Colossians received the gospel as we saw last week in verse 6. They received Christ Jesus the Lord. But here in this passage, it's as if Paul says, yes, but what you need to realize is that that gospel makes you rich already beyond measure. That gospel you've already received, that you already possessed, that's the only treasure you need. You see, this is Paul's strategy in writing the letter. It's not that the Colossians need some new information to help them stand firm. It's not even that they need some new strategy for spiritual warfare. No, the Colossians need to understand that already they are rich in Christ. Already they have received the treasure of treasures in the Gospel. Already they are complete in the Lord Jesus. And that, friends, is what makes this passage so valuable for us as Christians today. Look, I'll contend that Many believers, maybe even some of us, I know this is true of me at times, many believers view the Gospel like that old antique. We know it's important. We know it has some value. But we don't realize that it's actually a priceless treasure. We don't see the spiritual riches that we already possess in Jesus Christ. And that in part explains why we're so often drawn to other things. Or why our Christianity is so often just kind of anemic. It's because we miss the treasure that we've already been given in Christ. And so, friends, if I had to sum up Paul's point for this passage, it would be this. Already, believers are spiritually complete in Jesus Christ. Those who have Christ are rich. Not in earthly riches, which fade and lose value, but in spiritual riches that will last for eternity. Already, believers are spiritually complete in Jesus Christ. And therefore, since believers are complete in Christ, what we need is not to go looking for something else. Instead, we need a renewed understanding of the treasure we've already received. We need someone to say, yeah, what you think is just that old gospel, it's priceless. That's Paul's point in this passage. Already, believers are spiritually complete in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the details of the text and see how Paul makes this important and encouraging point. You may have noticed the shift in Paul's tone in verse 8. Having laid a solid doctrinal foundation, Paul now goes on the assault. For the remainder of chapter 2, Paul attacks the claims of the false teachers. These verses are full of negative commands and prohibitions. Things the Colossians must not do. Things they must resist. And yet, even in the midst of these commands, Paul continues to apply the truths of the Gospel. This is important to recognize, friends. All of these negative commands, all of the don't do that, all of it flows from the Gospel. It's not in addition to the Gospel. It's a consequence of the Gospel. This is how the Apostle Paul fights for the faith, by helping the Colossians to see the treasure that they already have in Christ. Here in the passage, there are three distinct sections to Paul's teaching. There's the warning that protects us in verse 8. There's the truth that defines us in verses 9 and 10. And there's the treasure that completes us in verses 11 to 15. Warning, truth, treasure. That's the outline. 
So let's consider each one more closely, beginning in verse 8 with the warning that protects us. Right from the start, you can hear Paul's concern. Notice the cautionary tone in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Beware, in other words. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Specifically against those who would take you captive. Think about a city that has been captured in battle. What do the victors do following the battle? Well, they take away the spoils, don't they? They, they loot the city and they even take the people into captivity. That's the idea that Paul warns them against. Don't let the false teachers take you as plunder. Don't let them take you away into slavery, into error. Paul then goes on to explain how this captivity might happen. Notice the next phrase. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now when Paul says philosophy, he's he's not talking about classical philosophy like Plato or Aristotle. Paul has in mind ideas that sound good, but are actually empty. So perhaps the false teachers referred to their teaching as the philosophy. You know, with this exalted claim of wisdom. And Paul says, be on the lookout against those things that sound good, but are actually empty. They're meaningless, even deceptive. In fact, that's the key point here. The false teachers have an appearance of wisdom. They look smart. But in the end, their ideas only lead away from the truth. They're empty and meaningless. Where do these kind of ideas come from? Notice the next phrase, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So notice the powerful contrast that Paul draws here. Unlike the Gospel, which comes from God... The false teachers base their ideas on merely human tradition. Friends, if your eternal life hangs in the balance, what should you rest your hope on? Truth from God or ideas from man? It's an easy answer. Human tradition cannot save. Man-made ideas cannot bring you to God. In order to have spiritual life, we need truth from God. Really, the whole validity of the Christian faith rests upon these two realities. The resurrection of Christ and that God has spoken in His Word. And it's true. In order to have spiritual life, you need to have truth from God. And that's what Paul reminds the Colossians of here, that what they have received is the truth of God in the Gospel. Even so, this human tradition has a sinister Power. Notice the next phrase, verse 8. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Now that phrase is very hard to interpret. It could refer to elementary or basic teachings of the Old Covenant, like the regulations of the Mosaic Law. Or, elemental could refer to how the ESV translates it as elemental spirits. It could refer to the powers and principalities of this age. What Paul calls in Ephesians the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And honestly, it's a very hard decision to determine which of the things he's referring to. But considering how often the letter to Colossians references angels and heavenly powers, I prefer the second option, that the elemental spirits are the Spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And that means the false teaching is empowered by the evil one. It's empowered by demonic forces that seek to enslave people in darkness. In other words, Paul is saying, these ideas won't free you. They're not going to lead to freedom. They're going to lead to slavery. They'll enslave you because they come from the evil one. 
Therefore, beware. Then it's the final phrase that captures the real danger of this empty, deceptive philosophy. Notice the final phrase, verse 8. According to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. That's the danger, friends. The false teachers are apparently saying many things, but it's what they're not saying that's the most important. They're not talking about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. They're not making much of Jesus. You can rest assured, friends, any idea or movement that does not exalt the Lord Jesus Christ does not come from God. This is a foundational point for biblical discernment. And it comes here from the Apostle Paul. Any idea, any movement that does not exalt Christ does not, indeed it cannot, come from God. So based on Paul's warning, we can sketch the outline of the false teaching in Colossae. It's empty. It doesn't add anything of value. It's earthly. It comes from man and not from God. It's demonic. It's empowered by the forces of this age. And most serious of all, it undermines Christ. Brothers and sisters, I mentioned it briefly just a few weeks ago, but we find it here again in verse 8. The world is not neutral. The same forces that were lurking around the Colossian church lurk around us today. The world is not neutral. There are empty, deceptive ideas that seek to take us captive and to lead us away from Christ. And the solution is not to withdraw from the world into some sort of monastic life. The solution is to be equipped. Beware. Be vigilant. So I'll just be straightforward with you. If you're not seeking to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word, then you're in a dangerous position, friends. You're like the soldier who heads out to battle without a shield and without his sword. You're not prepared to fight. You're not even prepared to defend yourself. And so the place to start is with the Word of God. Know your Bible, brothers and sisters. Know your Bible. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, they said if you would have scratched him, he would bleed Bible. He knew the Word of God. Know your Bible. Compare what you hear out there with what you read in here. Know your Bible. Know God's Word. And ask the Holy Spirit to grow you in the knowledge of God. And listen, you don't have to be an expert. If you belong to Christ by faith, then you have the one gift that you need. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And the Holy Spirit illuminates God's Word. So pick up the Bible and read it. And ask God to grow you in the knowledge of who He is. Paul begins with a warning. And if we'll pay attention, friends, it's a warning that protects us. It's a warning that protects us. As we come to verse 9, Paul shifts from warning to teaching. And it's here that we see the truth that defines us. The truth that defines us. Verses 9 and 10 give us the reason for the warning. Why must we see to it that no one takes us captive? For, Paul writes, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Here we return to the truth that has marked so much of the letter that Jesus Christ is the complete and final revelation of God. To know Christ by faith is to know God as He is. The point in verse 9, the emphasis in verse 9 is on the divine nature. The Godhead. The deity. The divine nature. And Paul's point is that Christ possesses that divine nature in full. 
It's not that He has part of the divine nature. It's not that God imparted divine nature to Him at some point in His life. It's that Jesus possesses in His being, it's true of Him, the fullness of the divine nature. All that is true of God, all that it means to be God, Jesus Christ possesses in Himself. In fact, Paul's expression is technically redundant. Did you catch it? He says the whole fullness That's like saying all the everything. Why would you say that? Why would you be so redundant? So that nobody makes a mistake. All that it means to be God, the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the deity, Jesus Christ possesses in Himself. But Paul's point goes a bit further here. Christ possesses this fullness of deity where? Bodily. It dwells in Him bodily, in His flesh and blood. Friends, this is a reminder that the incarnation of Christ is surely the most profound miracle in all of the Bible. If you're talking with someone and they want to reject the truth of the Bible, make sure that they reject it on this truth. Don't get caught up in whether or not there was a real flood. There was a real flood, by the way. Make them answer the question, was Jesus of Nazareth God? And did He die and is He still dead? That's the key to Christianity. The whole fullness here. The incarnation is surely the most profound miracle in all of the Bible. While not ceasing to be fully divine, the Son of God took on human flesh. So that the fullness of deity dwells together with the fullness of humanity in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And following His resurrection, Jesus continues as He is. Fully God and fully man. That's incredible, brothers and sisters. That is incredible that right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. It's astounding. Our mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. The man in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. It's astounding. Now in the letter, you can see what Paul is doing here, can't you? The contrast that he is building is unmistakable. The philosophy of the false teachers is what? It's empty. Jesus is the fullness of God. Empty in fullness. The philosophy of the false teachers is deceptive, but Christ has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Deception and truth. So if the question is between the empty philosophy and the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's really no question. Compared to Christ, these new ideas are worthless. And indeed, that's the direction Paul goes in verse 10. Notice the play on words that he constructs In verses 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. Christ is the fullness of God, Paul says, and you believers have been filled from His fullness. Fullness and filled. He's playing on these words here. So if Christ lacks nothing, then you lack nothing because you are in Him. That's the key application. If Christ lacks nothing, then you lack nothing because you are in Him. What is true of Christ the Redeemer is true of those whom Christ redeems. Friends, this is the doctrinal truth. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. This is the doctrinal truth we call union with Christ. Union with Christ. And as John Murray once said, quote, it is the central doctrine, it is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I I think that he's right. What does it mean to be saved? It means you're united with the Son of God. 
To be united with Christ by faith means that the Son of God shares His life with us. We know God as Father because the Son of God shares His Sonship with us. We stand righteous before God because the Son clothes us in His own righteousness. We are dead to sin because we share in Christ's death at the cross. We are alive to God because we share in Christ's resurrection. Do you see it? Believers are in Christ and Christ is in them. Christ lacks nothing in Himself and therefore those who are in Christ by faith are complete. What is true of Christ the Redeemer is true of those whom Christ redeems. All of it in totality. And what a wonderful and needed reminder this is, friends, that when it comes to the Gospel, please listen to me on this, when it comes to the Gospel, our greatest joy is not the benefits we receive from Christ. Our greatest joy is that we receive Christ. Him. In heaven. I would venture to say that We won't necessarily be singing praises and songs about justification by faith. We'll be singing praises and songs about Jesus Christ. Because we'll have Him. That's not to denigrate justification by faith, praise God. But it's to say that the crux of salvation, the greatest joy of the Gospel is that you get Christ. And in getting Christ, you get God. All of Him. To know and commune forever. This is the truth that defines us, brothers and sisters, that believers are in Christ, Christ is in them, and therefore there is nothing to add. Believers are complete in Christ. Now, one of the great things about this passage is that Paul doesn't stop in verse 10. You see the union with Christ there in verse 10, but beginning in verse 11, Paul begins to explain in more detail what that union means, what it entails, how it was effected. So, in our outline, this is the third section of Paul's teaching. The treasure that completes us. The treasure that completes us. It's here in verses 11 to 15 that Paul shows the Colossians the riches that they already have in Christ. He wants them to see these incredible spiritual realities that define them as God's people. Now, Verses 11 to 15 are full of interpretive challenges. So this would be a good section for you to study a bit more on your own, like the Bereans. Study it a bit more on your own, and then let me know where you can add some light that I still only see a little bit of shadow. So my aim is not to sort out all the interpretive minutia, for it is legion. Instead, my aim is to help us grasp the core gospel truths that drive Paul's application. So, to that end, note with me the riches. Note with me the great spiritual realities Paul emphasizes to the Colossians. First of all, Paul tells them they have new life in Christ. This is the first treasure. They have new life in Christ. Notice verse 11 where Paul takes a surprising turn. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, when you hear circumcision in the Bible, you probably think first of Abraham and God's command that every Hebrew male be circumcised at eight days old. But that's actually not what Paul is thinking about in this verse. And here's how we know. 
Paul was not thinking about physical circumcision. Notice the phrase, a circumcision made without human hands. In other words, whatever this circumcision is in verse 11, it's not a human action. It's not Abraham taking Isaac and circumcising him on the eighth day. Whatever it is, it's not a human action. So, if this is not about Old Covenant physical circumcision, then what is Paul getting at? What's his point? Well, Paul is picking up on an Old Testament promise of a spiritual circumcision. You see, even in the law of Moses, this this is important, friends, even in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, there was already the expectation that something greater was needed. The people needed something more than physical outward circumcision. They needed a spiritual circumcision of the heart. They needed God by His grace to strip off their dead hearts and to give them new spiritual life. And that, friends, is Paul's point in verse 11. The promise of spiritual circumcision has come to pass in and through Christ. Specifically, the death of Christ. Those who are united to Christ are united to His death. And through Christ's death, God strips away the believer's dead heart. And He joins the believer to Christ, which brings new life. This is why Paul can say in Romans 6 that believers are no longer enslaved to sin. How can Paul say that? The believers are no longer enslaved to sin. Because it's through Christ that God has stripped away sin's slavery. It's through Christ that God has stripped away the old, dead flesh and given His people new life. The work of Christ... Paul is saying here, is like a spiritual circumcision for those who, you, who believe. I know that's not how you typically think about the Gospel in your life, but that's what Paul is saying. It's like a spiritual circumcision. The old has been stripped away. It's a spiritual reality, in other words. But this spiritual reality does have an outward expression. Notice where Paul goes in verse 12. Notice where he goes in verse 12. He goes to baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him. So, baptism pictures this new life that believers receive through the work of Christ. Notice the repetition of the phrase, with Him. Do you see it? You're buried with Him. You were raised with Him. In baptism, believers are immersed in water as a sign of their union with Christ. We are united with Christ in His death, and therefore we are united to Christ in His resurrection. Baptism pictures that that old man has been gone. This is why historically when you would be baptized, you'd come up out of the waters and they'd give you a white robe. The old man is gone. He's been stripped away in the death of Christ. And the new has come. That's what baptism is picturing. This new life. But here's the key, friends, that ties all of this together. Here's the link between the spiritual reality in verse 11 and the outward sign in verse 12. You will misunderstand these verses if we we don't get this link. Here's the link between 11 and 12. Notice the final phrase. How is this union with Christ brought about in the life of God's people? Through faith, Paul says. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So how have we been buried and raised with Christ? Not through the actual waters of baptism. Not through the actual waters of baptism, but by grace through faith, Paul says. Through faith. Faith in the powerful working of God. 
Note then what ties verse 11 together with verse 12. The spiritual circumcision of verse 11 is made without hands. That is, it's accomplished by the power of God. And the reality that baptism pictures is seen through faith, which is an expression of trust in the power of God. It is faith then that forms the link between the spiritual reality of verse 11 and the outward sign of verse 12. Faith in the powerful working of God. Friends, this is one of the clearest reasons I take it in the Scripture for why I'm I'm a Baptist. It's one of the clearest reasons in the Bible why we practice believer's baptism in our church. Because without faith in Christ, baptism loses the link in the chain. Do you see? It loses the link with the spiritual reality that God has accomplished in Christ. All of that to say, friends, Paul wants the Colossians to understand there are no external practices that can bring them into life with God. There are not any outward things they can do to find freedom from sin's slavery. Instead, the Colossians need to understand that they have already been made alive in Christ. They already have new life in Him through the spiritual circumcision, verse 11, that's pictured in water baptism through faith, verse 12. New life in Christ. That's the first treasure. Along with this new life, Paul also tells the Colossians that they are forgiven in Christ. That's the second treasure. They're forgiven in Christ. In verse 13, Paul reiterates the point he has just made. Notice verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Friends, verse 13 is not one of those hard verses to interpret. Dead means dead. So notice that the saving action of the Gospel is accomplished by God and not by us. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in the uncircumcision of our old nature. Which means we had no ability to raise ourselves up with Christ. But God, by His grace, does for us what we could not do for ourselves. God makes His people alive in Christ. And He unites them to the Lord Jesus through faith. So you can hear Paul's repeated emphasis. Believers have been made alive in Christ by the grace of God. That grace leads them to faith in the Savior. And there is, therefore, nothing to add to the work of Jesus. Paul goes on, however, to explain that this new life brings with it forgiveness of sins. That's what I want to draw your attention to here. Notice the end of verse 13 and following. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, there is some question as to just what this record of debt is in verse 14. From the context, it makes the most sense that Paul has in mind the record of our sin against God. Paul envisions human lives as like an account before God, and by breaking God's commandments, we stand in God's debt. We're in debt before Him. It's a debt we cannot pay. But Paul's point is not so much about the nature of our debt as it is about the extent of God's action to get rid of it. Notice verse 14 where Paul says, God canceled the record of our debt. The idea here is to obliterate something. To eradicate it completely. So that no more record of it can be found. 
Friends, that is what God has done for the sins of His people. He has obliterated the debt so that there is no trace of it left. The point is that the forgiveness God accomplishes for His people is complete, total, and absolute. There is no more debt left to pay for those who are in Christ. But how has this debt been eradicated? Notice the end of verse 14. This, the record of debt with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's the death of Christ at the cross that purchases forgiveness for the people of God. When God forgives His children, He does not simply sweep sin away and pretend like nothing happened. No, God does something much more costly, much more amazing. God puts forward His own Son as the payment for sin's debt. Friends, please note how central the Lord Jesus Christ is at this point. Forgiveness comes only through union with Him. Forgiveness is not a thing that God gives you. Forgiveness is not a commodity that God has a bank account of that He doles out. Forgiveness is a personal reality that comes through union with Jesus Christ. We're forgiven because God sees us in Jesus who paid for sin with His blood. It's not a thing. It's a fruit of the work of Christ. A work that was accomplished for all who are in Him by faith. So if you belong to Christ today, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to save you, if you belong to Christ, the Father is not holding your sin against you. Your debt has been fully paid at the cross. Not 99.9% paid, all of it paid. There's nothing to add to the work of Christ. If you're repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation, there is no fear of condemnation. There is no longer any dreadful expectation of judgment. There is forgiveness. Your debt has been removed, eradicated, obliterated, pick whatever word you want, paid for by the blood of Christ. Listen, we need to take sin seriously, friends. If you're hiding sin today, I plead with you to bring it in the light. Sin will destroy you. It will destroy your life. If you don't know Christ today, sin will mean your eternal destruction before God. If you don't know Christ, I plead with you to trust Him, to believe that He died and rose again in order to save sinners like us. We need to take sin seriously. You hear me? At the same time, we need to take forgiveness seriously too. If you are in Christ today by faith, the Bible says you are forgiven completely, totally, absolutely. God is not waiting for you to make amends so that He can finally bless you and use you for His purposes. That's not how God works. That might be how I work, but it's not how God works. He's already done the work. Forgiveness is complete in Christ. And listen to me. One of the ways that you can honor the Lord Jesus is by believing that His blood forgives your sin completely and absolutely. You want to show the world that there's power in the blood? Then believe that you're forgiven. 
We sang it earlier this morning. It's why we picked that song. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Friends, this is part of the spiritual riches that every believer has already received in Christ. I had a wise, wise man tell me once that you should preach the fruits of Christ's gospel so, so boldly that it makes people uncomfortable that God would be that gracious. Completely forgiven in Christ by faith. We have complete forgiveness in Him. So, new life, forgiveness for sin. These are the treasures we have in Jesus. There's one more that Paul wants us to see. Verse 15, believers are secure in Christ. Believers are secure in Christ. If you look back at verse 10, you'll notice that Paul says Christ is the head of all rule and authority. The point there is that Jesus reigns over every spiritual power in the universe. All powers and principalities are under the lordship of Christ. That includes the devil. Every one of them submits to Christ. Here in verse 15, Paul gives us more insight as to how this happened and to what it means. Notice again when he says verse 15. He, I take the he to be God. He disarmed God the Father. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is, in Christ. In the ancient world, when a victorious general returned home, he would parade his defeated enemies before him in a triumphal procession. He, the, the winning general would come at the end of the line. All the defeated people in the front. He would parade them in front of him. And in doing so, the victorious general would expose his enemies to shame. He would show the world how powerless they were compared to him. Here in verse 15, Paul takes that image to describe the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead, He once and for all conquered the spiritual forces that opposed the people of God. The rulers and authorities of this age have no hold on the people of God because they have no hold on Christ. Think about it, friends. All the forces of darkness were arrayed in opposition to God and to His Christ. And yet those spiritual powers could do nothing to derail the purpose of God. In fact, the power of God is so marvelously demonstrated in that God uses death itself to crush death forever. That's the shame that God exposes on the powers and rulers of this age. He says, I will take your worst weapon and I will beat you with it. And I will crush you and disarm you. That's what God has done in Christ. They have been disarmed in Him. Believers are secure in Jesus. So let's put all of this together. I know that there's been a lot in these verses, so let's bring it all together and just try to summarize and make one final application. Christ is the fullness of God, verse 9. And believers have been filled in Him, verse 10. There's nothing to add. For those who are in Christ by faith, we already have new life in Him, verses 11 and 12. We've already been completely forgiven, verses 13 and 14. And we have already been secured forever through the victorious resurrection of Jesus, verse 15. There is nothing to add. And perhaps more importantly, perhaps most importantly in this passage, there's nothing to add and there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. Do you see how verse 15 
links back to the warning in verse 8. They, they go together. Yes, we must see to it that no one takes us captive. We must be vigilant. But listen to me, friends. Our vigilance is not rooted in fear. We're not vigilant because we're afraid of the world. We're vigilant because we've already been gloriously rooted in Christ through union with Him by faith. We have all we need in Him. There's nowhere else we need to go. It's a vigilance not rooted in fear, but in faith in the Lord Jesus. There's nothing to fear. These are the riches of Jesus Christ. And these riches belong to all who trust in Him by faith. If you don't know Christ today, I pray that God, by His Holy Spirit, would open your eyes to see that there is nowhere else you need to go for salvation and life with God. There is nowhere else you can go. Look to Christ. Trust in Him and be saved. If you are trusting in Christ today, I pray that you've been encouraged to see that what sometimes looked like that old gospel is really the unspeakable riches of Christ. That God could not give you anything more than what He's already given you in Christ. It is the treasure of treasures. And seeing that treasure, brothers and sisters, I pray that each of us will grow in faithfulness and confidence and joy in Him. Amen. Let's pray.